All right. Well, good morning. Uh, I didn't think about it the first time I listened to Dad's uh, introductory remarks. Should we take any any guidance from the fact that Cook only shows up three times in the Bible? That that's distressing to me. <laughs> that's certainly out of proportion with I think how I see uh, that whole. Um, uh, activity. Uh, so I'm going to have to uh, see if I can come up with some other um, synonyms that might be mentioned more often uh, so I can shore up my theology a little bit uh, because uh, I, am, I am a bit concerned about uh, the implications of that um, observation that he made. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, so we are in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 7 and uh, when last we left uh, these, uh, these folks, um, the Ark had been captured by the Philistines. Uh, it had given them all manner of grief uh, with, uh, depending on what you read, either tumors or boils or hemorrhoids. Uh, none of those three things are very <laughs> exciting or pleasant. Um, in any event, they had been inflicted by God of these things as long as the Ark was in their town. Uh, so in succession, each of the Israel, or rather the Philistine uh, cities, had said, "No, um, on to the next." You know, this not in my backyard sort of uh, concept. And uh, ultimately, they said, "You know, this just is not going to be able to stay in our territory." So they hooked up a couple of cows uh, to uh, a cart and um, uh, patted them on their way. And sure enough, uh, the ark uh, made its way back. Uh, to the territory of uh, the Israelites. And um, uh, we know that uh, in the passage that he just referred to that uh, the people of Beth Shemesh um, were glad to see the ark but didn't treat it with a proper reverence. And as such, several of them, at least 70, perhaps more than that, uh, were put to death. So they had their version of <laughs> not in my backyard and sent it to this neighboring town uh, that we learn about in verse 1. It says, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab uh, on a hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from that time, the day, I'm sorry, from the day the ark was lodged uh, there, uh, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So that brings us to today's passage, which begins in verse 3. And um, here we have this transition point. Uh, we're going to have a chapter, uh, the, the remainder of chapter 7, that talks about Samuel and his role as judge. And then we're going to see in chapter 8 uh, this transition where uh, we move uh, toward a king. So in verse 3, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. This, this concept of if you will follow my commandments, then God will be faithful. If you will do what I say, I will protect you. If you will do it the way I say it, things will go well for you. This concept we've seen all the way through, right? When we, when we were in Exodus, we saw it. Years ago, when we were in Joshua, we saw it. Uh, we've referred to judges. Um, 
we've seen it there. Um, this, this give and take between being faithful to God's commands and his guidelines, um, generally things go well for you. Uh, and the reverse, of course, is also true. In this particular case, um, for whatever reason, um, God had been working on the people and, and Samuel sensed that they were ready to repent and he calls them to repentance. And the, he says, put away these idols. Now, as we mentioned at the tail end of last week, it's kind of crazy that, you know, what was the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? I mean, that was the first one, right? That was how, you know, and yet, what is it all down to? Oh, yeah, those idols that are in your house. You need to get rid of those. Remember from Isaiah where we, uh, God talked about the absurdity of having a carved idol in your house that one end of the log you carve into an idol and the other end you throw into the fire and how, you know, how stupid is that? Same sort of thing. So, thankfully, verse 4, the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashroth and they served the Lord only. Now, verse 5. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and true water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that, that day. Um, this drew water and poured before the Lord, this is a concept that we don't really see anywhere else in Scripture, but it appears to indicate some sort of, you know, we're putting it all out there for you. Um, this probably somewhat of an arid climate, gathering water, carrying water was probably a big deal. So this, this pouring out of water probably has that connotation. They poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered together, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. So the Philistines, you know, I guess they've got spies. They're monitoring their neighbors. And it makes sense when everybody's dispersed, the threat is less. But when you see all the tribes gathering together, um, in their mind, coming from a military background, they're going to assume something's up. And so uh, they kind of want to be proactive against this. And that's what happens. So uh, verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So you can be fearful, and it can be a bad thing. Here is a situation where they were fearful, but at least they turned to God with their fears. They had come far enough along in their relationship to say, you know, God, you need to help us here because we can't do it ourselves. As opposed to when things weren't going well for them originally and they decide, oh, we'll just pack up the ark and go and see if that'll help us, right? They didn't turn to God at that point and they've learned their lesson here, it seems. So Samuel does. He says uh, in verse 9, So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. 
But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. So God gives them a victory. Wasn't a lot of planning, uh, just God, and that was plenty. Uh, interestingly, if you put your finger there and turn back a couple pages to 1 Samuel chapter 2, where we have Hannah's song of praise. Uh, in her prayer in verse 10, she says, prophetically, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. So here we have um, you know, Hannah prophesying uh, that God is the one that's going to be in charge and specifically mentions uh, God thundering against the enemies. So now to verse 12, it says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up at Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Now there was another place where there was an Ebenezer, right? And that was to commemorate where things had not gone well um, just a, a few chapters over. Verse 13, So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. Those were some of the cities, remember, that the ark had landed. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel and all of these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for, that, for his home was there, and there he also judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So we have um, Samuel uh, being a good judge, uh, literally going in this circuit among the towns and, um, and being judged. If, if you remember... Moses had set up this um, kind of division of labor thing back in the day where um, if people had complaints um, and they would bring it to the priest and, and they would, you know, adjudicate complaints. Um, you know, my neighbor stole my sheep or I think my neighbor stole the sheep or whatever is going on there. Um, you know, the property marker goes here and no, we said it stopped at the creek or, you know, there are disputes that happen in, in life, if you haven't noticed. And um, so he was doing all that judging, but also um, calling out justice to, uh, from the way God saw it and was going from town to town to do this. Um, <coughs> chapter 8. When Samuel became old. So, verse 15 Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, compresses all of this work of Samuel. Everything from when he was just getting started till right at the end compresses it all down to one sentence. Um, and isn't that kind of how it happens, right? Um, as you think of people who have passed, you think, well, what were they known for? And you could probably say what they were known for in a couple of sentences. And it really doesn't do justice to the day-to-day -day that 
these people were grinding it out, you know, doing, you know, what they were supposed to be doing. And uh, so here's Samuel. Um, he gets books of the Bible named after him. He was kind of a big deal. Um, but all of his, most of his work, his day-to-day -day effort, you know, it comes down to, in my Bible, about uh, eight words. Uh, so, I mean, it's just, um, it kind of highlights, you know, we're, we're not working for the glory. We're working for um, the Lord. All right. Chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, who does this sound like? It sounds like Eli's sons, right? Remember, Samuel was raised in Eli's household, and the downfall of that whole judgeship, and actually he was also a priest, the downfall of that was his sons. They were, what, Phineas and Hosnia or somebody, like, um, and they were, you know, you know, fornicating with the women there to help out with the temple. I mean, it was horrible. And and they were judged by God for it. They were killed. And the sign, you know, was given to, to Eli about that. Things look a lot like today, but... In what way, Pat? All this right here said, but they turned aside from his ways and after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Uh, yeah, uh, that is true. Um, uh, bribes and perverted justice is not an uncommon thing. Um, that is that is true. Um, and much of the world works this way. Um, this is not inside knowledge, um, but, um, you know, um, corporate Walmart got slapped on the hand because in Mexico, they would bribe the officials. And that was considered, this is how you do business. Well, they don't do business that way anymore, but that was considered, it was, it almost wasn't considered wrong. It was considered normal, you know? And I know there are parts of the world where it's still like this. Um, my brother, who I think, you know, works for Walmart, he was telling me about in, in South Africa, it's really bad and that, you know, they don't care if Walmart stuff sits on the dock for three months. If you don't pay 10 bucks to the guy at the gate, it's just gonna sit there, <laughs> you know? And um, so bribes are certainly <laughs> commonly done and uh, obviously this is old. So that's a good observation, Pat. So things were not going well. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, everything we know of Samuel from his start Everything we hear about him is positive. You wonder what happened with his sons. You know, you could, pro you could say, well, was he a failure as a parent? Or did he train them the right way? And, and I think most parents understand at a certain point, your kids have to take responsibility for their own actions. So I think this is a good point. Um, 
he's not judged like Eli was because apparently Eli knew what his sons were doing and didn't do anything about it. This geography that's mentioned here about were judges in Beersheba, that was a long way away. So it's very plausible that Samuel's just now hearing about what his sons are up to, that he didn't know what they were doing uh, because geographically it was a long way away. In any event, uh, this becomes kind of a pretext for what happens next. So verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So, when they came to Samuel and said, Give us a king, what were they saying? They didn't want God. They didn't want God. And they didn't want Samuel. Because Samuel was the one in charge. They could have said, hey, your sons are, are not going your ways. You need to fix that. They didn't do that. They, again, if they were just worried about the sons, and if they trusted Samuel, then they could have asked for relief in that way. But this became just an excuse, basically, to say, we want a king. Samuel knows this isn't right. It says, and Samuel prayed to the Lord, verse 7, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Samuel's upset. He takes it personally. He takes it to God. God says, you know what? It's not you. It's me. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, what's happened here is, as time has passed, um, they still have not um, become fully convinced that God is going to take care of them. And they see all their neighboring nations um, with militaries and um, you know, kingly leadership and all that. And what they're mainly worried about is just national security. They think that they need a king to handle this because they don't really trust God to do it. That's really what they're wanting. And God says, okay. You know, basically they say, we want a king. In the next verses, we hear God through Samuel say, no, you really don't. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him, and he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. This is what's going to happen, just so you know. 
He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. If you go through and underline all the times the word take shows up, um, you would think this would be sobering to them. And you have the first cook in that. Yeah, we have our first cook. Yeah, Pat, Pat caught that. So the people listened to the Lord, said, no, we really don't want a king. We were wrong. Um, let's just forget we asked. Is that what they said? No, <laughs> that is not what they said. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Here it comes that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the Lord, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. I'm sorry, all the words of the people. He repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And basically at this point, Samuel thinking that he has a lot to digest, says, all right, y'all go home. Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to a city. Y'all go home. And that's where we wind up in chapter 8. So what do we think about all of this? Um, We have the people saying, we want a king. We have Samuel and God saying, no, you really don't. And then we have God saying, okay, okay, okay. You get a king. Um, it's, um, it's really interesting. If you go back... You don't have to do this, but in Exodus chapter 15, there's a verse, Exodus 15, 18. Moses is singing a song to the Lord. All the things that God does in verse 17, he says, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place that you have made, the sanctuary which your hands have established, and the Lord will reign forever and ever. Who reigns? Kings reign. Moses is saying the Lord is going to reign forever and ever. Closer to the action in the book of Judges, after Gideon's famous battle, this is Judges chapter 8,
says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Some translation says, the Lord will be your king. So this, this desire for a king was based on fear. It was based on insecurity. It was based on the fact that we want someone to protect us. We want someone to look after us. We want someone to fight for us. Had God been doing that for them? Yes. But they didn't, they just didn't like it. And I think it goes back to this thing with the idols. They had been given somebody worthy and somebody capable to put their trust in. I don't know what it is, but for some reason they said, no, we'd rather worship this little carved thing. Right? And then when God saved them from the Philistines through thunderous victory, it's not too long later that they say, yeah, but we really need a king. This whole you being in charge thing isn't working out. We want a king. And it's all driven by fear. And I think, you know, we probably have that same tendency that, you know, as a, as a people, as a country, you know, we're always looking for somebody to rescue us, right? Uh, I want, I want uh, my government to rescue us. I want my benefit to rescue me. I want my whatever to rescue me. Um, but if you haven't noticed, politicians make horrible saviors. <laughs> they just, they just, it's not, it's not their thing, right? And I'm sure there are some well-meaning godly people that are giving it a shot. But I think even they would admit that they're just trying to, to help, that at the very least, at the very most, they're, they're trying to partner with God to bring about some, some good. But, um, but I think anybody who puts their trust in any worldly contraption is going to be disappointed, right? You're going to be disappointed. This concept of worship and repentance um, go hand in hand. It's hard to worship if you haven't been repentant. Um, true repentance just naturally leads to worship. That's pretty obvious from this. Um, I'll close with this. Uh, we'll finish a little early, but I found this quote in one of the commentaries. from. There's a, a guy named uh, David Wells who was looking at this, this kind of how worldly theology crept in to the nation of Israel and why they wanted a king and why Samuel wasn't enough and this whole concept. And it says, and he's talking about this trend toward 
self-centered religion. He says theology, because that's they it, it, they were more concerned about their own needs than, than what God had said, right? He says theology becomes therapy. The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness. Holiness by wholeness, truth by feeling, ethics by feeling good about oneself, and the world shrinks to the range of personal circumstances, and the community of faith shrinks to a circle of personal friends. The past recedes, the church recedes, and all that remains is the self. So, I, it's it's a provocative comment, but if if you see it in in the world, um, everybody has become their own arbiter of what's true, right? Everybody says, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me, as if things were just up for debate. Um, and we all start to look at our own comfort level as as how we see God and, and that sort of thing, and, and it, it is distorting. It is distorting, so um, something to think about. All right. Comments? Ken? The grass is greener on the other side of the fence, even when you get there. <laughs> the grass is always greener. <laughs> yeah. That's true. There is a. Oh, go ahead. In essence, what changes? You know, that circle just keeps going around and around, and we're still in that circle today. Yeah, like the, uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Whoever it was, uh, yeah. there's not much new under the sun. Right. Yeah, there was a it was a, a very helpful book I've referred people to in the past uh, uh, about uh, dealing with adultery, but the title of it was "The Myth of the Greener Grass," and that's often true. It's it's uh, it's truly a myth. All right. Well, thanks everybody. Uh, let's close real quick. Father, we thank you for um, this little snapshot into the history of your people and uh, we thank you for the way that um, uh, you can use uh, these words and these accounts to uh, remind us of the fact that um, it's it's your rules it's your guidance it's it's our relationship with you that really matters and that you are so worthy of our faith and trust and that you are more than capable of taking care of us and we thank you for that in Jesus name amen thanks everybody <clears throat>